Hello and welcome to the No BS Approach to Motherhood podcast, hosted by Catherine Hay and Shelley McKenzie. We are both mothers and clinical nutritionists who specialize in women's health. We are here to not only bring you the most up-to-date nutritional and health advice when it comes to fertility, pregnancy, postpartum, and children's nutrition, but our main goal is to break through the BS that can come with motherhood. No topic is off limits, so grab a cuppa or a glass of wine and join us for another raw and real conversation surrounding motherhood. We are back for another episode and we don't have Shelly here today. We've had a few technical difficulties um, and even getting Selene into the recording seat with us. It's been lots of backwards and forthing and Shelly's computer basically blew up an hour before this scheduled (laughs) interview. So no Shelly today. So I'm here on my own with Selene Douglas, who we've had on the show before and we were speaking all things postpartum, weren't we? Mm, We were before I was even really... I guess, qualified in the experience sense to talk about that. I would probably say a few different things this time around. Since then, you've had your beautiful baby boy and um, we are getting you on today to speak all about PCOS. Um, We've actually never had anyone talk about PCOS on the show and we've never talked about it either, Shelly and myself. So we're really excited to have you on the show. We're diving deep to PCOS um, but again, for our listeners, um, Selene, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, who am I? I I'm a nutritionist. <laughs> I live on the Gold Coast. I am really obsessed with my dog. I have a little baby boy. He's now 10 months old. And I've learned a lot in the last 10 months of being a mom. It's definitely been a wild ride. And I definitely have so much more I don't know, respect to parents now. Um, When you see other mums in the street, I feel like you give them like the obligatory nod of like, you're doing good Um, because it's, yeah, it's definitely a wild ride Um, in terms of my business. So I really help women with their PCOS um, and help them to really reduce their symptoms um, without medication if that's what they want. Of course, if they are taking medication, that's no problem as well. But being a nutritionist, the strategies and things that I use are really all um, non-medication based. So using nutrition, supplements and lifestyle changes. uh, And you can get some really incredible results with your PCOS using those things. Absolutely. And that's what I'm so excited about. So Let's let's start with the basics. What is PCOS? Um, what are the drivers of PCOS? And, you know, we hear about different forms of PCOS too. So I'm happy to, I really want to like bust some myths and kind of get into the nitty gritty as well, because I feel like PCOS is just so commonly diagnosed on ultrasound alone, or that could have been as person's diagnosis, you know, 20 years ago, and they're still going under the PCOS umbrella, but they're actually not PCOS, all their signs and symptoms have drastically changed. So that was a very long winded. (laughs) But let's start with what is PCOS? Yeah, definitely. So PCOS is really an acronym for polycystic ovarian syndrome. I think the name itself starts a lot of the confusion because it it sort of insinuates or shows us that really the condition is marked by polycystic ovaries. Um, They can be a feature, but not always. Um, At the moment, what's used to diagnose the the syndrome is the Rotterdam criteria. 
And that states that you need to have two out of three in order to qualify. So two out of three, the three, um, I guess, hallmark characteristics are irregular or anovulatory cycle. So you might still be getting a period, but you may not be ovulating. Um, Symptoms of high androgens. So you might experience acne, the hair growth, facial hair growth. You might even get it on other parts of your body. Um, Hair loss from the head is quite common. um, And you may or may not be able to actually see those elevated androgens on a blood test. Um, There are three different androgens. So we can get into this, I guess, later on, but we've got testosterone, androstenedione, and DHEAS. And I find very commonly that perhaps not all of those are going to be tested. Um, so that can be sometimes why you might be getting symptoms, but you know, perhaps um, someone's told you that you don't actually have those elevated antigens. And then the third um, part of that criteria is polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. So the Rotterdam criteria really states you need to meet two out of three of those characteristics in order to qualify. Um, I guess one of the main shortfalls of the criteria is that there are other conditions that you could have in which you could actually meet that criteria where it's not PCOS. Uh, And so I think... really applying the Rotterdam criteria is great, but really all practitioners should be thinking about what else could this be if it weren't PCOS. I mean, that's kind of always what we should be doing, but it's not happening a lot of the time. Um, And that can definitely lead to a lot of misdiagnoses. um, And a lot of people, I think, thinking that perhaps they do have PCOS and maybe they actually have something else. A lot of what we see as well is just an ultrasound being done and then PCOS being diagnosed, which is obviously really problematic because there are lots of reasons why you could have polycystic ovaries or many undeveloped follicles on the ovaries is really another way to term that. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have PCOS. Um, So it's, yeah, it's definitely confusing. It is such a confusing space and let's go into that a little bit further. So what are the main, I guess, signs and symptoms Mm. that, you know, people who are listening to this and go, am I PCOS, am I not, that we are experiencing and what would be the main diagnostic, um, I guess, diagnostic test you would send your clients off for? Yeah, definitely. Um, So main signs and symptoms, the irregular cycles are often a big symptom, but I want to say that basically with every PCOS symptoms, it's not that you will necessarily have all of these features. You might have a couple, you may present with all of them. It is really quite varied, but irregular cycles are quite common. Um, And irregular can really be anything from I've had clients where it comes every two weeks to then coming to six weeks, eight weeks, six months, like there's a lot of variation in that. Um, Some clients will find that the irregularity is smaller. So for example, they might get it at 25 days and then 35 days. And then some will find they get it at 25 days, then it doesn't come for another 50 days, for example. So there is a lot of variety in that. Um, definitely a common symptom can be issues with, um, weight loss resistance. So feeling like just no matter what you do, it's just really hard for you to lose any weight. Again, not always the case, but we do know, which we'll get into that with PCOS, it does often come with, um, 
I guess, poor metabolic functional insulin resistance. And that is going to drive a lot of that weight loss resistance. So um, that can definitely be a feature. Acne is quite a common feature as well, or even just an overproduction of oil in the skin, um, even if it's not sort of full-blown acne. Hair loss from the head is really, really common as well, um, along with hair growth. So they're all of our kind of common um, symptoms and features. And there's a huge long list of tests that I go and get, but I'll kind of, um, yeah, narrow it down to the few key ones. Firstly, you really do want to have your androgens tested. So you want to look at, as I said, um, total and free testosterone, androstenedione and DHEAS, um, because that will actually tell you whether there's an androgen excess or not. Now, again, I'm sure you've talked about this heaps on the show, but um, standard reference ranges leave a lot to be desired. I've had clients who have a free testosterone of say like 35, which is so high, be told that it's not high. (laughs) So um, yeah, it's important to be comparing your results to um, correct benchmarks, which I can give you a resource um, for as well, um, perhaps. Um, And then we want to look at a few other um, areas, I guess, within PCOS. So um, you've probably heard the term, if you've looked into PCOS at all, like types or root causes or that kind of thing. And it isn't entirely like uh, scientifically correct to be using those terms, but it's helpful for you as the client um, experiencing PCOS to understand a bit more about what the key lifestyle changes you need to make to help improve your PCOS. So I think it's helpful in that sense. So the key things we want to look at, definitely insulin resistance. um, So a fasting insulin test. We also want to look at HbA1c and fasting blood glucose. Um, Being that PCOS comes 70 to 80% roughly is the stat um, with insulin resistance, there's a really good chance that you're going to have problems with that. Um, I see as well really commonly that only like a fasting blood glucose or a HbA1c is tested. And I really disagree with that because I have seen time and time again, clients that definitely have insulin resistance um, come back with those markers being fine. So I think it's great to assess those um, all together um, to get a more comprehensive understanding. There's really no like perfect test for insulin resistance, but doing those three is usually really easy to get done through your doctor and does give you a really good understanding of, um, yeah, your blood sugar control. Um, we also want to look at SHBG or sex hormone binding globulin. Low levels definitely support the fact that it could be an insulin issue. Um, and that shows us that really the, um, the level of androgen and even estrogen that we have available if it's low, the SHBG is actually going to be higher and more potent and active. So it does tell us a bit more about, okay, if someone has say um, normal levels of androgen hormones, but really low levels of SHBG, then that activity on your body is actually going to still produce those high androgen symptoms. Um, And so that's where I guess, you know, like don't accept being told that you're fine or you don't have high androgens if your results come back fine, because it is more like nuanced than that, I guess, as with everything. Um, One of the other things that's really important to test is your prolactin level. So very commonly elevated in PCOS and this in itself can actually contribute to higher levels of androgen hormones um, and can also contribute to the menstrual cycle irregularity. um, And it can actually also suppress estrogen as well. So that also is part of why it's causing that cycle irregularity. um, But getting that um, 
tested and improving that is going to be really key as well. Um, obviously, we want to test estrogen too because that can really be um, high or low in PCOS. It's really a bit of a mixed bag. Um they're kind of like the basics. I think as well, I always try and push for a full thyroid panel as well because I've had just too many clients in my time that have had normal TSH, maybe average looking T4, but nothing that you would expect to see, like not, not shocking essentially. And then they come back with like Hashimoto's as well. And you're like, okay, this is such an important piece of information for us to know to start improving your... I guess, um, yeah, your health as a whole and also improve those PCOS symptoms. Like obviously if you have something like Hashimoto's that is undetected, it's going to really contribute to poor energy production, all that kind of thing, which is going to make it harder for you to even be bothered to improve your PCOS because you just aren't going to have the energy to do so. Um, I think that's like a good sort of starting point. Obviously, um, stress hormones are great to assess, but we do get a bit of an understanding from that with the DHEAS and the prolactin. Um, And then based on someone's like case history or even symptoms, like whether they're feeling good when they wake up in the morning, whether they feel tired and wired at night, you may or may not like look into say um, like a salivary cortisol test or something like that um, of morning cortisol can be helpful sometimes, but it can be tricky to get accurately. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the basics. Um, I think we can obviously cast, oh, and LH, FSH, pardon me. That's probably the most important thing that I nearly left out. Um, so LH and FSH are our gonadotrophin hormones, and they're really important in really the orchestration of the cycle and really commonly in PCOS again, not always, but commonly you'll see a really high level of LH compared to FSH. And that is also going to contribute to, driving up the androgens further and really going to prevent ovulation essentially from occurring or occurring regularly. So one of the key things you obviously want to find out is, um, A, is there an imbalance there in FSH and LH and how high is it? Because as well, when you then get to implementing strategies and whatever you're using to bring down that LH, it how high it is gives you a bit of an understanding from the practitioner perspective of like setting realistic expectations and timelines for how long you would expect to see that to start reducing. I've had clients with LH above 20. It's We're going to expect that to take a little bit of time <laughs> to come down. Whereas if their LH is 10 and their FSH is five, we're expecting that to not take as much time. So yeah, that's kind of the basics. And then obviously with my clients, I do cast a wider net because we're obviously thinking about health holistically. And if we're looking at obviously things like our thyroid, we're curious to see where things like iodine and zinc and all of that are at. And obviously how we can put together that really comprehensive picture as to what's going on. Yeah. Fantastic. And that's what it, you know, it's about that comprehensive look and understanding what that pathology looks like. Now, if we have a PCOS typical, let's say typical in air quotes, mm. PCOS missing period, amenorrhea, when are we getting these blood tests? When are we getting yes. our blood tests done? Because yes. we know, well, you and I know that we are <laughs> strategic and when we refer our clients to get hormones tested in particular, on particular days of the menstrual cycle. Yeah. In this case, what do you suggest for those clients? Well, if they have no cycle, we can just get them tested any day. I'm not going to, I might be waiting a long time for them to get a period. Um, so I just send them any day equally. Um, 
we can fairly safely assume that it's still going to be follicular phase testing because they're obviously not ovulating or, you know, that's the assumption we're going to be making. If they were, we're probably going to be able to see um, that they were ovulating as well. They would get a period, you know, within a certain time frame. So, um, yeah, we would just get that tested any day. If there is some kind of cycle regularity, like say, for example, I've had clients where they might get a period every like, I don't know, again, 25 to 35 days consistently, I would still be trying to get that, say, day two to three um, testing done. But again, I've had clients that have a period of like 60 to 90 days. I'm not waiting that long for them to go and get testing done. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And on, say, cycle day two or three, what tests are you looking for on those hormones? Typically just LH, FSH, um, I would do estradiol as well. Um, If we are looking at, um, like if it's just those tests I'm wanting to look at, then that's fine. But if I'm looking at like prolactin and things like that, I will just go and get them to do those together then. Um, Sometimes with androgens, I guess if it comes back with surprising results, you can look at testing those um, more in like your mid-luteal phase and get them tested at a different time. Um, But I just find with a lot of clients, it's actually not always necessary because they're actually high enough on that day two, day three um, to support the, I guess, direction of what we're thinking and what we're wanting to introduce for them. Yeah, perfect, perfect. So now we've covered, I guess, diagnostics and what PCOS is. So talk to me about, you know, if we, how, this is probably a hard <laughs> question, but how long do you usually suspect your clients, mm. like let's just say, again, in air quotes, typical PCOS yeah. kind of picture, to gain their quality of life back, you know, to really regulate their menstrual cycle. And, you know, we always look at, I guess the period is a hero of the menstrual cycle when it shouldn't be, you know, ovulation is to dictate how our menstrual cycle is. So talk to us if you can about what kind of treatment looks like depending on, I mean, obviously this changes from person to person, but I get a bit more of an umbrella um, approach with what you would expect. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, first up, definitely testing. And really, I think the key thing to take away here is that like, there's so much I rattled off you know, a fraction of the things that we could be looking at from a testing perspective. So that just highlights the amount of variation that we could potentially see in a PCOS case. And I think the biggest mistake is that all PCOS cases are treated the same when in actual fact, you know, different presentations are going to require different things in order to get results. Um, So basically once testing is organized and completed, it's really about identifying what those issues are. And like, I guess we all kind of work like this is what are those like big top dominoes, right? Because it might look as though someone has 10 different imbalances, but actually if you were to trace it back, there might be 10 things that we're looking to improve, but, but there might be three or four like big dominoes. And so for example, like It's about drawing those connections, I guess, and starting with those top level issues and focusing on those. So they're the things obviously that are going to get you the biggest bang for buck, I guess. Um, So again, like this is the classic PCOS case. Insulin's 100% going to be something I'm going to be focusing on from a nutritional perspective. Um, In terms of how long it takes, I always say to clients like within one month of eating 
the things that are going to support your health, you can start to see some really amazing changes. You might even see it sooner than that. Like you might be starting to have more energy, noticing that you feel more comfortable around food because ultimately your blood sugar control is starting to improve. So you're not feeling like panicky, hungry. You're not feeling like you just cannot stay away from the sweets, like all those sorts of classic things. Again, not always the case, but very classically what we would see with PCOS. Um, And then really for hormonal changes, I always just set the benchmark of minimum three months is what you're giving it because obviously we know um, egg development takes around 90 days, 88 days or so. Um, So we want to give it that amount of time. And I do have clients that get results a lot quicker. I would say for clients that do have a cycle, but it's irregular, we're expecting them to have results and changes quicker than a client who has amenorrhea with PCOS. Um, And I think the thing that can be challenging with those clients is just really helping them with, you know, I guess when you have an irregular cycle and you're aiming to get it back to say like, you know, 28, 30 days, something like that, you are likely to see improvements over time. With amenorrhea, you probably won't. You'll just probably get a period back one day. And you might have had to be quite consistent across three or four months to kind of be like, I don't even know if this is working, right? Which can be really challenging. And I understand that, but it's, um, you're looking for, I guess, those other improvements in terms of quality of life, like energy and those sorts of things. Um, I get most of my clients, not all, but if I feel like they can handle it, I will get them to do BBT tracking. Um, yes. So basal body temperature tracking um, so that we can see ovulation when it's happening. And I just find this is so important. Um, and I have a really, if we get to it, um, great sort of case study around this recently with a client of mine who um, had PCOS, kind of a non-classic presentation. She was very lean. Um, She did have the acne presentation, definitely had the high androgens, but had amenorrhea. So she basically went off the oral contraceptive pill mid last year, didn't get a cycle back, really wanted to start a family. So she came to see me around, I think it was around February, but she was starting ovulation induction straight away. So I was more supporting her around that. So we weren't doing a lot of the, um, we weren't doing some of the things that I would be doing normally if she wasn't doing um, ovulation induction, but we were really focusing on egg quality, getting her to actually eat more. Um, And So what happened was the first round of ovulation induction, she did respond and she got a period, didn't fall pregnant. Um, Second round, she was a non-responder. And in that timeframe, I said, I want you to start doing basal body temperature tracking to track your ovulation because we're obviously doing a lot to focus on ovulation naturally. And it's possible that you will actually ovulate on your own in between these cycles if you don't respond. So she was a non-responder in that second round. And then about a month after um, the, her sort of um, unsuccessful round of ovulation induction, we saw through her charts that she did ovulate herself. And we were in an appointment and this was about five days after her ovulation. And I was, I use Kindara. I don't know if you use that, but I use it for clients because I can sort of share screen and walk them through their data. And I was like, from what you've entered here, it obviously looks like you've timed things really, really well. And we can see that you've ovulated. So I don't want to get your hopes up, obviously, but there is a good chance you could be pregnant at the moment. And um, anyway, 
she actually did a test shortly after that. Her HCG levels, which unbeknownst to her at the time, weren't high enough. So she thought that she wasn't pregnant and she called the fertility clinic and they'd actually scheduled her to go back in for more ovulation induction for her third round. And thankfully, um, she before she went back in for that, because they'd already tested her, she did another at-home pregnancy test because we could see the data on her chart and her temperatures just weren't going down. So she wasn't getting a period. Her temperatures weren't going down. We could see very clearly when she ovulated and she was actually pregnant. Yeah, um, incredible. Which just shows yeah. like how amazing to be able to see that change. And also thank God in a situation like that, because otherwise they would have been given giving a pregnant lady ovulation induction medication. And I don't know what happens in that situation. I don't even want to know. No, neither. Yeah. So I think that is a great way. Um, And again, also um, a great way to, I guess, see those earlier signs of progress. Um, I think with PCOS, um, you know, it often, not always, but comes with uh, some challenges around relationships with food um, and making some of those nutrition and lifestyle changes because a lot of these clients will be told, just lose weight, just go and lose weight. You're overweight. You need to lose weight to improve your condition. And when you do have something like insulin resistance or even really high prolactin or low thyroid function, it's really not as simple as just you know losing weight. There are some really specific things these clients need to do to actually facilitate making that change easier so it's quite different um and also depends on yeah the the i guess clients um mindset around those things i find often with pcos you're better going slower and steadier than going all in um too quickly and overwhelming mm. absolutely and that case study, I just, I love that. I mean, that mm. is just so incredible and positive. And um, I'm so glad you mentioned that um, Kindara, is it Kindara? I, yeah. I yeah. 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 So anyone who's listening to this, have a look at that app. I mean, there are so many incredible apps, but, you know, if you are working with a practitioner, that's obviously really helpful yeah. so you can share the screen. So that's really great. Now with PCOS, what is the medical industry mm-hmm. doing in terms of treating PCOS and how can we please debunk, I guess, I'm going to, metformin, can yeah. we kind of go into why is it prescribed, what do you see clinically with this mm. particular drug, are you seeing results and what's a better option because we know there are better options out yeah. there, obviously more holistic and natural. For sure, for sure. So, yeah, metformin is our most commonly used um, drug for PCOS. And I will say I am biased to its results because no one's coming to me saying, I'm so happy with my metformin. I love it. It's done wonders for me. It's worked so great for my PCOS. That's not the client. Like, no, that doesn't happen. So my view is definitely warped on it, but it is, yeah, the most commonly used medication for PCOS. There's a few problems that I have with it. So metformin is used as a drug for often pre-diabetics, usually not full-blown diabetes. Um, and it is helping to regulate your blood sugar levels and helping to regulate your insulin. It does have a number of different side effects. So it is known that it can really deplete um, B12 levels. Um, And again, with a metformin prescription, nearly no one's given that information told to even test their B12 levels or anything like that. Um, Of course, the um, 
potential for damage from long-term B12 deficiency is really serious, particularly on brain health. Um, Other side effects, often the GI side effects are really significant for people. So they will get um, loose bowels, diarrhea. Not everyone will get that, but a lot of clients do. Um, And we have just so many better options. You know, I guess my experience has been that the problem with it is that these people are given a metformin prescription and then just not really educated or shown or helped or coached through what nutrition changes need to occur alongside it. The same as how we would never be giving out supplements for blood sugar regulation and saying, you don't need to change your diet. You just take these supplements and you'll be fine. They wouldn't work very well if we did that. They are a nice, I mean, they're a supplement. That's literally what they're called. They supplement the things that you're already doing to correct the issue. And I think that's really like how we need to be viewing it. Like insulin resistance develops for like a variety of different reasons. There are genetic factors, um, but there are really some key dietary factors as well. Um, And so we want to look at someone's macronutrient intake. Really, I've probably can count on like one hand the time I've ever worked with clients or two hands maybe around like specific calorie intakes and things like that or prescribed like particular gram amounts of carbohydrates. I just don't work like that um, because I find for most people, it's just not sustainable integrating that into their life. And from a mental health perspective, it's just not really something that aligns with me. Uh, and I find it doesn't align with most people either. If they want that for sure, I can give you that, but I just don't do that. Um, what I will say is, I guess in my, how I educate clients, I know ballpark how many grams they're eating, but they don't need to necessarily know that. Um, so, um, Yeah, basically metformin, there are a bunch of different side effects. Some people can tolerate it from a digestive perspective and some really can't. I have literally had, this was another really interesting case last year, a client be diagnosed with Crohn's disease um, and have such high levels of inflammation in her digestive tract. And she's actually in the US. We were working alongside Cleveland Clinic um, with her through her GI map and her gastroenterologist was also involved. And basically we did do quite a number of different things to help support her gut and reduce that inflammation. But one of the key changes and the key changes, I guess, that she noticed and felt within her body was actually when she went off metformin and she was told three months later at her um, next uh, endoscopy that everything was fine and there was no longer those levels of inflammation. And they essentially were like, well, I don't really know if we would even classify you as having Crohn's now. So, I mean, we know that it can it has the potential to cause a lot of digestive um, inflammation and damage, but I guess, you know, we're not going to be putting people on metformin and sending them in for endoscopies to check these things right. So um, we don't really... Um, often have that information and some people are more sensitive than others. Um, From a nutritional perspective, obviously we do want to be really looking and considering carbohydrate intake. Um, You can be eating a healthy whole food diet, but still just be eating too many carbohydrates for your individual body. Um, And there's variance in that. Obviously, if you live at home and your partner's like, I don't know, a 
a full-blown athlete. Like you're not going to be eating the same things that they are, right? But you could be eating all really beautiful whole food, carbohydrates, honeys, fruits, oats, those sorts of things, and still be um, perpetuating that insulin resistance really. So that's something that we need to consider. I find most people, um, a generalization of course, but tend to have the macro balance wrong. So that's really something that I focus on for sure. Um, and then just really making sure that we are reducing anything obvious, like lots of refined carbohydrates and those sorts of things. And then from our supplements, we have so many different better things than metformin to be using that don't cause um, those symptoms. Um, myoinositol, of course, is one. We've got things like cinnamon, um, we've got things like chromium, which can really help to curb the cravings. So if you have, you know, clients that are really struggling from the craving perspective, you can obviously pick and choose the certain um, blood sugar supporting supplements that you're going to be able to use to help with them. And again, I know I don't have clients coming to me that are happy with their metformin, yeah. but I see way better results using these strategies. Again, because I think because we're also probably like, changing the nutrition as well, right? Like changing that main thing. If we can, I know this is um, a gross oversimplification of what insulin resistance is, but essentially it is an intolerance to carbohydrates, right? So it doesn't mean that you have to eat none, but we really do need to consider that whole, I guess, intake and picture and what's actually appropriate for someone to be eating. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's the foundations, right? Yeah. The foundation set. Nothing else is going to work efficiently. For sure. And I feel like everyone wants like the sexy supplements and things like that. I definitely have clients that come to me and they're taking literally like half of Chemist Warehouse, which I mean, I don't get my sub, wouldn't recommend supplements from Chemist Warehouse anyway, right? But um, they haven't made those changes and they're like, my supplements don't work. Mm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, Multiple it could be because they're from Chemist Warehouse. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, 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 totally. Um, and then more recently, I'm seeing a lot of o- Ozempic being prescribed, um, which is more of our newer, like very vogue, obviously fat loss drug. And again, like stop looking for the magic pill. Like seriously, why, why, why have we not learned this? That it's not, it's not going to, in most cases, it's not going to work. If you have a problem, if you want to lose weight, there is a way that you can do it um, through these more, you know, nutritional supplement lifestyle changes. There's a reason why your body is holding on to that stored fat. And if you just take a drug and you're continuing to, if it is a dietary intake, if that's part of the issue, that problem isn't going anywhere. You're not actually fixing it, right? There's really high rates of rebound and a very... I don't have this sort of statistic in front of me, but there is an alarming correlation with thyroid issues and thyroid cancer and drugs like Ozempic. So I just think we need to be, you know, understanding that there are real risks with these sorts of medications and they just unfortunately seem to be being prescribed way too easily. And you hit the nail on the head. It's Vogue. It's it's on trend. Mm. You know, people are promoting it. We're we're seeing it all over social media platforms, and it's it's scary. From especially for people like us in the health space, when we see the repercussions and the flow and effect of people coming to us after taking these drugs, and their whole yeah. entire system 
is out of balance yeah, and completely definitely. has no idea how to recalibrate itself also. So talking about macronutrients, and we'll just touch on this slightly because I think it's a really important topic, not just for PCOS, but hormones yeah. in general. If we're going to really look at um, someone's diet and looking at that foundational yeah. blood sugar regulation, what are you kind of recommending? You know, give us a breakfast example, yeah. give us a lunch example, give us a dinner example for our, for our listeners at home. Yeah. So I always just start with breakfast um, always because... I mean, all your meals are important. It's not just breakfast, but it honestly does set the tone for the day. If you've started your day eating something that has supported your blood sugar levels, you're going to be more likely to feel like that kind of food later on and you're not going to get panicky hungry, you're not going to get as moody and irritable and you're not going to get that 3 p.m. crash or it's not going to be as severe, which ultimately is yeah, just going to impact us as a domino basically. So um, there are lots of different ways that you can achieve this. Basically the kind of the pillars of creating that macronutrient balance plate are that you have fiber on your plate, protein, and some healthy fats. Fiber can be broken up into a few different things and obviously does include complex carbohydrates as well. But if someone has insulin resistance, I may be more likely to recommend that they have a slightly lower carbohydrate breakfast. Um, so that might include things like, um, you know, either eggs or an omelet with some leftover veggies and some avocado. Um, if there's more room for carbohydrates, that might include something like a slice of sourdough or a slice of gluten-free toast or something like that. Um, basically, Around about half the plate, two cups of veggies is what you're aiming for. Somewhere between, you know, 20 to 30 grams of protein, depending on like, you know, how tall you are, how much you can actually stomach, all those things. And that might be two eggs and something like some cheese, or it might be three eggs. Like it just depends really. Like I'll never force feed someone. Often when I have clients that aren't eating breakfast or aren't eating much and they're like, I just don't have the appetite. I'm never going to be like, you need to be eating three eggs Da, 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 and all this thing because they're just going to look at me and be like, I'm going to vomit if I have that much. So I was like, okay, we'll just start with where you're comfortable. But basically we really want to work towards getting that full serve of protein in at breakfast. And then healthy fats is quite varied. Like I used to be a lot more, I guess, prescriptive in terms of how much fat someone should be eating, but everyone's just so individual, especially with, you know, digestively. Some clients have things like Gilbert syndrome that's not identified and that kind of thing, which means they're less tolerant of fat. So I'm very, um, I guess I'm more lenient with that, um, but around two to four tablespoons roughly of fats. Um, and you can really apply that same sort of structure or breakdown to all your meals, but say, for example, like a lunch, um, I mean, dinners, leftovers make a great lunch, but if you were doing something like a macro bowl or something like that, you could have two cups of roasted veggies and that can be of all sorts, even things like carrots, pumpkins, zucchinis, broccoli, like all those sorts of things, maybe, um, a cup or so of fresh, like loose um, greens, one full serve of protein. So I always say like if it's animal proteins, um, chicken, beef, lamb, anything like that, somewhere between the hand, the palm and your hand, your full hand, that is varied as well because, um, you know, I just say like check in with how you're feeling a couple of hours after eating. If you're hungry in two hours, you probably do need to eat a little bit more protein and it would be better for you to get closer to that hand size than for you to be gorging on a chocolate bar in two hours because you're still hungry. So um, it's just about understanding that there isn't actually like a one size fits all for how much protein you should be eating. Like we're not robots. Um, but somewhere between 
the palm and the hand just really cueing into your own hunger signals. Um, and then the fats could be something like, you know, um, one tablespoon of olive oil and one tablespoon of tahini in your salad dressing or something like that. And maybe you have some complex carbohydrates in there, which could be, again, like um, some rice or some sweet potatoes and potato, even some fruit alongside that kind of thing. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And I love that structure. And I think it just gives our listeners just a little bit of a guide, you know, yeah. how should we build a plate? Because it's such a common um, question that, you know, we get asked, how do we build a plate and what do we want to aim for? And I think that's obviously really important with PCOS, but hormone um, function and metabolism in general. And just so, yeah. like daily like everything, yeah. <laughs> just getting <laughs> in. Yeah. Like I'm like, that is literally nutrition 101 is just yeah. basically aiming for that. Obviously it gets more complicated than that, but it can also be that simple for a lot of people from the nutrition perspective. Like often you don't, depending on what your issues are, of course, don't need to actually get more finicky than that. And it. it ensures you get lots of those micronutrients too, if you have variety. That's it. It's it's funny, even in my own clinic recently, I've, you know, I might not have seen a couple of patients for 12 months or so, and they're coming back and it's all about just bringing it back to basics mm. and simple tips and tricks that some, you, you think we have to overcomplicate health and nutrition, but we really don't in yeah. like, you know, as a, as a whole, it's just bringing it back to basics and having those core foundations set, which really helps support so many other systemic issues in the meantime as well. For sure. Okay, so I guess the last kind of topic I wanted to touch on here. So say a PCOS patient is presenting with elevated androgens and they know that and they've got, you know, they've been diagnosed um, on an ultrasound alone. What are your kind of top tips, I guess, for reducing um, androgens through supplementation and food? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I guess, you you know, it's such a big part of... um, some of these PCOS people's Mm. profiles. So what would you do in that instance? Yeah, I think it it can be the issue in most cases, not all, but um, that's like (laughs) the thing, the the quote of today is not all the time, but most (laughs) of the time. Um, I think it obviously depends on the case, but um, it's working out why the androgens are high. So coming back to that, like the androgens being high isn't the end of investigation, right? It's actually going, okay, like let's cast a wider net with our testing. And say, for example, if it is something like insulin that's found to be elevated, we know that that is um, A, going to um, increase the secretion of testosterone in the ovaries and B, going to reduce the level of sex hormone binding globulin that we have available, which is actually going to further exacerbate the the um, the activity, I suppose, of that testosterone um, contributing to the PCOS symptoms. So our target then becomes one of the core targets is obviously reducing that insulin. Now, I know a lot of what people find online is like the anti-androgen, you know, supplements and they take things like DIM and that kind of thing. And I I never prescribe that kind of thing. I mean, um, there might come a time, but I haven't ever used those sorts of things and I still get really good results. So I'm just looking at actually why are the androgens elevated um, and say in a situation like where the DHEAS levels, where that's the androgen that's elevated, it's like, okay, well, why is it actually the prolactin that is elevated? Like, you know, what do we need to do about that? So 
The supplements that I would use would obviously just really depend around that. Um, blood sugar supplements, um, things that can be really helpful would be things like myoinositol, chromium. Um, one that's really popular is berberine. I don't um, always use that. I sometimes do, but you just don't want to use it for too long because of its impact in the gut. Um so yeah, I would really never use that for longer than a couple of um, cycles if I was using it. Um, but chromium, myonositol, um, spearmint tea can work really nicely alongside um, everything else that you're doing. So again, you would never use this as like a standalone intervention, but it can be really helpful for reducing those androgens. There's some sort of... Um, what's the word, like uh, argument as to whether it could increase LH levels. Um, but that's why you want to be doing it, I guess, alongside all of your other strategies, the nutritional changes, the other supplements. Um, depending on the hormone profile, there are herbs which can work really nicely for PCOS, but it just depends again on what um, particular outcome you're hoping to see where someone's cortisol levels are at. It's really important too. Um, but things like black cohosh, peony, licorice, cinnamon, they can all work really, really nicely um, depending on the person. And I guess one supplement that I would say is of um, caution for PCOS is definitely anything with Vitex or Chase Tree. Now, I will say that there are some clients who can actually benefit from that if they have um, low levels of LH and high prolactin, then it's possible that they can benefit, but they're a small minority. And so what you'll often find is like your generic hormone balance supplements. Like we see this all the time, right? And I'm like, there's so many hormones. Like how the F can you have a hormone balance supplement? Like, are you kidding? There's so many hormones. And often these supplements, like we would turn them over and they just have everything but the kitchen sink in there. And you're like, are they just like, what, what? I'm just yes. so confused. But anyway, again, I see why people fall into this trap because you're like, okay, yeah, I do want to balance my hormones. I have something like PCOS. Maybe I should take this hormone balance supplement. Um, in most PCOS cases, Vitex will worsen your condition because it will increase that LH, which is ultimately going to increase the androgen production. Um, often your acne gets worse, the irregular cycles get worse, all of these sorts of things. So you really do want to be careful around that um, because I've seen lots of people make that mistake. Yes. Yes. I'm so glad you touched on that. So glad you touched on that. Yeah. Um, and I guess wrapping it all up, if we had to give mm -hmm. our listeners, um, a bit of words of wisdom, or if people are suspecting they have PCOS yeah. and they don't really know where to start, where do they start? Yeah, I think testing is always the first place to start. Um, if you do have the, um, ability to work with a practitioner, I really think this is the best thing to do because, um, you know, like pardon my like abruptness, but we just don't have it right conventionally for PCOS. And look, um, yeah, I don't know how to sort of say it politely, but mostly in the conventional model, they're not doing great things for PCOS. Like, so I just think you are better off working with nutritionist or naturopath or someone who can take that more in-depth look. And also someone who's not just going to treat it as all PCOS cases are the same, because I hope that today's episode has shown that they're actually not. There's a lot of nuance and variation. Um, you know, it'd be the same as you working with an endometriosis client. I'm sure you don't prescribe or recommend the same thing to all your endo clients. Um, yeah. And it's really the same 
for PCOS. There's a lot of nuance and you need to get that testing to actually understand what the nuance is, right? Because the symptoms in PCOS could look really similar, but when you actually get that blood testing back, it could show you that you need to do some really different things for each person. Um, Like to give you an idea of some of the current clients I'm working with, there would be certainly similarities in their supplement protocols, but there's they they would nearly all be different. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. That's where, yeah, I guess with any hormonal condition, we are really passionate about, you know, if if you can and if it's in your means to work with a qualified uh, practitioner because we're getting that information. We're testing on, you know, specific days or in the, in yeah. the typical days. I mean, anyway. gosh, even <laughs> that, that's a topic in of itself. Like exactly. how many times you're like, they said my estrogen levels were fine. You're like, oh, so what day in your cycle? Oh, what? Is that a thing? Even today, I had a client go, this is what my doctor, and I wrote it out very specifically. I couldn't be more specific for this particular GP. No, you don't need day two or three blood. You can just all done um, any day of the cycle. We can give two referrals, you know, the same thing. So then it's so much backward and forth. And obviously your clients are getting a little bit frustrated because we're not getting the answers that we want. So then we're referring to ice cream or other, you know, testing means, which is out-of-pocket expenses, but it's like, we need this information on specific days so we actually know. Can do our job. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, definitely. The best I heard recently was PCOS has nothing to do with your hormones. Why are you getting these tests? I was like, oh, pretty sure it has everything to do with your hormones. Wow, I haven't heard that one before. That is it. <laughs> a good one. Yeah. Statement. <laughs> <laughs> So, Selene, where can we find you and what are you offering now in the PCOS yeah. space? I know you've really niched into PCOS since we last chatted, so fill us in. Yeah, definitely. So my Instagram, I'm very active there, Selene Douglas underscore nutrition, and you'll find lots of posts and sort of tidbits there. And then the podcast has had a bit of a facelift. Um, it's now called the PCOS Podcast. I just can't believe that name was even available, but it was, yeah. so... <laughs> Thanks, universe. Um, And, yeah, you can find episodes there. You'll obviously see a lot of different variety of episodes because it's only more recently that it has been rebranded. And in terms of offerings, um, my offering is called the PCOS Pathway and it goes for six months and that's really where I help you to get the test that you need done and then implement a really unique personalized PCOS strategy um, to help reduce your symptoms because it really is possible Everyone gets a different level of symptom resolution, but it's totally possible to improve your symptoms. And some people do end up in a place where they really aren't dealing with their PCOS symptoms on the daily. And um, they've really been able to significantly reduce their symptoms that it doesn't impact their quality of life. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And your Instagram is just a wealth of knowledge and I'm sure all of your community is learning so much. So I highly recommend going and checking out your Instagram account thank because you. it's incredibly informative. And so thank you for sharing all of that with us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That way we can continue to inspire and reach more mamas around the globe. If you would like to get in contact, request a guest or topic, then head to the No BS Approach to Motherhood Instagram page and send us a direct message. Otherwise, until next episode, stay sane, mama.